Hello, and welcome to the Still To Be Determined podcast, the podcast that follows up on topics from the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell. I'm Sean Farrell. I'm Matthew's older brother. I will be asking the questions, and he will be answering them. And with me is Matthew Farrell. Hey, everybody. Before we get into the episode, we have a, another call out for our stilltbd.fm page, which is a way for you to directly support this podcast. It will really help us with future programming and expansion of what we hope to do with this with this podcast and this recording. And uh, we hope you check us out there. There's a link right in the middle of the page of provide support. This week, the podcast is going to focus on Matt's most recent episode, which is, is vertical farming the high-tech future of food? Question mark? <laughs> There's always a question mark. <laughs> This episode was from February 2nd, 2021. My first thought about this is somehow it feels like we should be in March. I don't know why I feel that way. So <laughs> when I see you just it, want to skip a month, <laughs> this, this being released on February 2nd, I thought, how can that be possible? And then I realized it's not, I mean, what is today's date? The 7th, the 8th? Yeah, yeah. This video is full of very pretty visuals that look like they were all done at Epcot Center. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> and it is full of references to, we're really at the first steps here. This is really sort of a new pioneering going on in this. Yep. But the names of the people involved, you had an episode of your of your channel a while back, which was about disruptors. Mm -hmm. People who have a vision and see a static field and come in and figure out a way to undermine and subvert it and kind of explode it. Yep. It's interesting to me that two of the biggest names in that are involved in this kind of vertical farming programs. The It's not Elon Musk, but his brother. Yeah, Kimball. On one hand. And on the other side, Jeff Bezos being mm -hmm. a somebody who's involved in this. And, and Bezos's involvement doesn't surprise me at all. They're obviously looking at Whole Foods yes. as a market yep. that would sell these things. And if a holds Whole Foods, there's one here in Brooklyn that was built when I was first moving to Brooklyn, which was more than 20 years ago. There was talk of a a new grocery store was going to go in down on Third Avenue, and it seemed like it was taking forever for it to be built. And when it was finally completed, it's a Whole Foods, and then. Bezos owns Whole Foods at this point. And on top of the Whole Foods are all these glass, these glass roofs on this, on this new building. And lo and behold, I find out that somebody I know works there. And what that is, is a hydroponic garden where they grow some of the food that they sell there inside the store. So then I, that's, I find that out like two years ago. And then I'm watching your video and you mentioned <laughs> Bezos is yep. somebody who's pushing this as an industry. And I can't even tell you how many bells went off in my head. It was really like, well, of course. Yeah. He's oh. looking at. <laughs> this yeah. makes so much, so, so much sense. So yeah. when you talked about the Columbia Project, which looked at how much food could you grow on a rooftop, mm -hmm. that wasn't an analysis of rooftops in a neighborhood. It was looking at how, like, how much rooftop is there in New York City? Okay. And if we grew food on the rooftops in New York City, how much food could we, could we produce? 
And so it was like, if you boiled it down to like per square mile, we could produce this amount of food, which would feed this number of people. Right. And that's, that's when it came back to that's nowhere near enough food. <laughs> right. <laughs> you can't do it. But if that was to be done at every individual Whole Foods location and they were growing or every grocery store, let's say. Right. Um, it starts to add up and it turns into, it really begins to change the way that food gets to us and what our expectations are. But one of my concerns, and I'd like to hear your thoughts about this, is access to that from a democratic perspective. This turns into those food prices are probably going to be higher. Does it mm -hmm. create a two-tiered food system where people with more affluence have access to what is effectively healthier food? Well, that's that's where it is right now because it is more expensive to produce food this way. Right. So right now we do have that two-tiered system of like Whole Foods might have this hydroponically grown stuff, but they also charge <laughs> three times as much, three times as much money yeah. for those things in their store than you could get at the local stop and shop around the corner. Um, so yes, there is a two-tier system right now, and that's but that's part of what the industry is trying to do is they're trying to drive the cost down of producing food in this manner to put it on par where cost would be one-to-one. -one. Because when you're talking about disruption, the only way disruptions kind of take hold and really flip things upside down is when that new technology or that new method of doing something, it's it's not just providing a better quality of something, it's providing a better quality of something in a more efficient way than the old way of doing things. And that's kind of like why EVs are now starting to take over the car industry right now, because... EVs are actually better than ICE cars in many, many ways. Right. And the shortcomings are getting figured out and fixed where this is the same thing. Vertical gardening brings a huge amount of value that traditional farming can't in urban locations. So it's, it's doing something that just can't be met, but the problem is still cost. So as they're driving costs down, it'll come to the point where every city will be doing this because it's a no-brainer. It's like, why would you right. not be doing this? Right. Um, and then farmers themselves, uh, what was it, Freight Farms, uh, if you go to their website, they actually have um, little bios and different farmers that are doing this. And there are farmers that have traditional farms that are using this as an add-on to their farms. So you have a farm that's growing wheat and different things, but you can't grow in the middle of winter. So there are farmers that are getting a bunch of these trailers and they'll have like, you know, half a dozen of them on their farmland and they're growing strawberries year round. <laughs> Because it helps them to earn a more consistent baseline of revenue year round. And then they still have their farmland that they're using for other crops the other times of the year. So it's there's there's benefits not just for urban, but there's benefits for just farmers in general, which is really kind of a cool concept to this. One of the things you talked about was that this seems to be focused largely on produce vegetables and fruit and there's not really a grain production at this point and i began to wonder is grain production something that even necessarily should or would transition to this kind of farming or would it slowly expand into those areas where currently some arable land is being used for vegetable and fruit but could be converted over into doing wheat and other grains because more and more of the fruit and vegetables would be done in this kind of vertical farming simply because wheat might not wheat might not be able to be produced as easily in this way yeah the, the, all the stuff i was finding on this topic there's 
it does seem like there are certain crops that will just never be done this way. It just would, it just, I can't imagine doing corn this way. It's just, there are right. certain crops that are just too large and they require too much space and it would just be inefficient to do it this method. So I don't think vertical farming will ever like be the norm across the board. But if you're doing more and more things like strawberries and watermelons and maybe even potatoes or different crops, this method, it does free up that land for other methods. Like you could be using it for corn and wheat and barley. It's like, it, it almost doesn't matter that grains can't be done this way. Right. Um, this is just an add-on that opens up new possibilities to rethink how we're farming our arable lands. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And you mentioned time being one of the constraints around this. It just seems to make sense to me that wheat takes longer. Yeah. That it wouldn't, you wouldn't have the turnover of crop that you would with strawberries. I mean, I can just imagine strawberries are popping out new berries at a much faster pace than you'd ever be able to do with a wheat berry, which the, yeah. the growth of the stalk itself might take as long as you, as several crops of, of strawberries or corn, the same thing. Yeah. Um, I only, I only lately touched on it in the video, but the air, this hydroponics style system, um, the fruit, the vegetables and the fruits that you grow tend to grow faster mm-hmm. and larger because it is so highly optimized for how you're doing it because right. they're getting more oxygen, they're getting more consistent nutrients, more consistent lighting. And so you end up with more flavorful vegetables. You end up with larger vegetables than you would get growing them out in land, even using fertilizers and things like that. So there's, there's a extra benefit to it of we, we may find that like, I don't know about you, but like when we get strawberries here, sometimes they're just kind of flavorless. They don't really have a, a deep flavor. It's where, very, it's, yeah. Yeah. My, the markets near me also, we struggle with timing. So as you point out, the, the produce, when it is in transit for a week can lose yeah. a huge portion of the nutritive value. And just yesterday, I was looking at some berries, a table of berries that was on display in the supermarket. I was headed to the supermarket. Unfortunately, I, I didn't think about the timing of when I was going to the supermarket. I should have gone during the week. Uh-huh. And I went on Saturday before Super Mistake. Bowl Sunday. Mistake. Before a blizzard <laughs> was going to hit. And it was like walking into a Romero movie. It was <laughs> Night of the Living Dead at the supermarket. <laughs> And the things that were picked over later, I was thinking, I was talking to my girlfriend and she said, well, of course things were picked over. It was before Super Bowl Sunday. And I said, yeah, but they weren't out of chips. They were out of yogurt. (laughs) And I don't know about you, but I don't want to go to the Super Bowl party. That's just like, hey, bro, pick up a yo. Come on. (laughs) Sit on the sofa with me. We're going to watch this game. Yeah. All right. How you like that yogurt? We're calling it Brogurt. <laughs> it's a Super Bro of party. Episode. <laughs> yeah. We're calling pick it up, Brogurt. Pick up your Brogurt, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so there was this table of berries that was on display, and it was the prices were really great. But of course, it's February. So I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, where are these even from? And looking at them, you could tell on the strawberries that if you cut them open, they were going to be solid white. And mm-hmm. the there was 
a bunch of blueberries and the price on the blueberries was almost like, please take these free blueberries. And <laughs> the blueberries were kind of a sky blue color. And Ooh. Ooh. it was at that point Ooh. that I was just like, well, unless I was going to put these into a gun and shoot them like buckshot, I'm not, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to enjoy these berries. Um, but there is also that, that craving that you get at this time of year for yeah. fruit and that kind of like texture and like, oh, I want something sweet and I want something that's going to make me feel like it's, it's healthy. It's going to feel healthy. So this kind of vertical farming, it's not only optimal for the plants, it really starts to feel like it's optimal for us. It can yes. be providing us with nutritive value that we really go without at certain times of the year. And yeah. as you point out, certain parts of the world, certain parts of even this country where there's just a lack of certain kinds of food and you think about the opportunities there to, to increase that. It's really, it's one of those times where it feels like it's a utopian vision and I'm wondering mm -hmm. how much of a, you mentioned the USDA's involvement in this, but how much of how much support is there from the USDA in pushing this kind of growth and this kind of development of this new technology? Well, there is, there is, they're spending a lot of money. I mean, you're talking millions of dollars being poured into, uh, research around this to companies that are trying to do this. So I, I think the USDA sees this as a potential for kind of, they're being smart about it. They're, they see where things are heading with the population and making sure that there's proper chains of food that are supplying our population. But beyond that, um, you brought up how like it, there's areas of the world that just don't have access to certain kinds of food. Um, somebody commented on the video, I should have written down his name. He he's, lives in Saudi Arabia and he said in Saudi Arabia, this is there's a lot of interest in vertical farming there because mm -hmm. clearly a huge portion of that country is desert. So growing fruits and vegetables is tough. And this kind of thing could bring a whole new market of food to that region of the world that's just fresh produce that they just normally can't get their hands on easily. Right. So it's, it, it makes a lot of sense. Or pay countries like, incredible yeah. numbers. Yeah, incredible, yeah. incredible uh, dollars to, to import stuff. Exactly. And did you find anything in your research of where this intersects with genetically modified foods? Because that's a hot topic. And is yeah. this something that I could see how this could be in some people's minds could be a answer in response to the idea of genetically modified foods. But I could also see, and I think this is where I land on it, of this working hand in hand with genetically modified foods. The benefits being, let's say you develop a corn that does grow without a giant stalk and it grows faster and you're able to grow ears of corn in a vertical farming situation where you're able to create a, a, a good quality nutritive corn that can be used for human consumption, but it doesn't require the time or the land and the amounts of water that, that corn normally does. Well, um, did you see anything where there was overlap there? No, it's, it, it was actually the opposite. It's like almost every single one of the companies, like Plenty, they, they all touted how basically you don't need GMOs with this method because you're getting bigger, fresher, you know, more flavorful, flavorful produce and you don't have to worry about bugs or pesticides because it's in a controlled environment. Right. So you right. don't have to do a special kind of corn that's resistant to a certain kind of bug because that bug can't get at the plant in the first place. Right. So there, it's actually touted as the exact opposite of you don't have to worry about GMOs. We can do all natural 
pesticide free foods that's actually better for you because it's grown locally and closer and super fresh. Um, but I see your point of that could be the angle for how do you do grains? Well, it's like, what if there's GMO versions of grains that can be grown this way in a more efficient way that takes up less right. space? So in that case, maybe, but for right now, everything I was seeing was the exact opposite. It was like, this is the solution for non-GMO. And my last question was, where does this intersect with, you mentioned at the beginning of the video, how some of this spun out of NASA research. Mm -hmm. How does this continue to intersect with NASA and space exploration? Does this, there's obviously environments where you could say, oh, if this could be, if there could be a vertical, uh, a small vertical farm built uh, as part of the space station or a space station where you would have mm -hmm. a good portion of the food being produced in a location like this to provide astronauts with a uh, nutritive and Earth-like diet as opposed to everything being shipped up to them. How much intersection did you see in your research around that? Well, it's still very much going on because we're talking about basically landing on the moon again and maybe building a lunar base and then getting to Mars. This kind of research has never stopped at NASA. That's like they're they're still doing this kind of stuff. There's not a I didn't see any kind of overlap between NASA and companies like Plenty. I did not see any kind of overlap there with private industry, but NASA's still very much, you know, involved in doing their own research around this. I also wanted to ask you about, let me start that over so it's actually into the microphone. I wanted to ask you about some of the comments that were left on the video. One comment was from Fred V and he wrote, quote, have you tried any yet? His answer is yes. I had my own aquaponic system, one outdoor running on sunlight and one indoor with LED and they worked fine. It's more than doable on a small scale for a family. Pretty soon, we'll also have meat grown in lab hitting the market. Maybe fewer vegetarians in the future. And you obviously responded to this saying, thanks for sharing. And lab-grown meat is fascinating to me. I couldn't help but think of <laughs> Better Off Ted. Have you ever seen that show? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Better Off Ted is an older sitcom. It is available on, I believe it might be on Netflix or Hulu. It is usually streaming somewhere. People should, should look for it and check it out. One of the running storylines, it's a, it's a comedy about a, about a corporation let's say if the company was Exxon, but it was also making products that were meant for food and clothing and children's toys and everything under the sun. And, but they were running it from a perspective of, we don't care about the consumer. We just want to make, make money. Mm -hmm. And Ted is one of the vice presidents at this company. And he is constantly running into ethical dilemmas. And one of the running gags is that in a lab, two of his scientists have are growing lab grown meat Mm -hmm. But every time they show it, it kind of pulses and throbs <laughs> and the scientists give it a name and they have to do things with it where they have to constantly uh, douse it with nutritive liquid. So they they are kind of feeding it and caring for this thing that just sits there and pulsates. <laughs> and whenever they do taste testing around this this lab-grown meat, people's responses are are terrible. It's uh -huh. you know, people are, are eating this thing and, and in some cases just run out of the room, start to throw <laughs> up. It's so I couldn't help but think of that when I saw that comment, but yeah, uh, the, 
I don't know if you saw this, but I enjoyed in response to Fred V's comment, I enjoyed the response from MDC Forerunner, who wrote, sounds like some herb and gardening, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I wonder how much of the research into vertical farming includes people who have pot farms in their basements. I was going to say, it's probably a pretty significant portion of people. Yeah. 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 Somebody else commented, quote, something you said, quote, the growth of vertical farming, close quote. And they wrote, I see what you did there. This was <laughs> not as pun heavy as some of your videos, but it was there. They were, they were still in there. It was there. It was, it was hard to avoid. <laughs> and lastly, I wanted to question you about the following information that you then checked out and I want to get your feedback on it. RJ Tumble wrote, if you want to see an upstart in this market, check out The Real Martian here on YouTube. He's building something like Square Roots. And you responded back that you checked it out. And I wanted to know what you thought about it and what you found. What is it? Um, it's He's a YouTuber that's created, he's basically building out systems just like this for himself. And he, he basically built a little um, experimental pod that he was living in, <laughs> like, a, like a little little ecosystem. Um, fascinating. It's, it's, this is one of the things I love about YouTube is that there's a lot of, I'm including myself in this statement. There's a whole bunch of wackos out there doing random topics <laughs> that are all kind of crazy. And I love the fact that there's a guy out there that basically built himself a little ecosphere and filmed himself doing it and just put it up on YouTube. And it's really cool to see what he learned. And I would, I, if you're interested in this topic, I would really recommend checking out his channel. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I like the, I like any place that gives uh, wackadoos a chance to just be like, I'm a wacko. I'm do my own thing. <laughs> I'm going to do my own thing. Maybe people will like it. And then people check it out and they like it. Yeah, exactly. I'm a, I'm a firm uh, supporter of wackadoos. And like you just said, I include myself firmly yes, in that yes. camp. We are both wackadoos. As our parents keep telling us. Or our grandmother said about you. That boy's just not right. <laughs> and yes, she you actually gotta, said that about Sean. <laughs> you got to respect grandma. Yes. God rest her soul. Yes. Transitioning to the second half of our show, as usual, we'll talk about some of the things we've been watching and uh, make recommendations or anti-recommendations in some cases. And mm -hmm. Matt, I'm flipping a coin. Oh, okay, here we go again. <laughs> heads or tails? I'm going to go Heads. <laughs> oh, it's, it's tails. You lose. I'm going to go first. Okay. I have three movie recommendations for this episode and wow. for three very different reasons. Um, the first is in connection to the podcast, how did this get made? And it is the movie monkey shines. And one of the listeners of the podcast may recall that my girlfriend and I had a We've set up a viewing uh, pattern for watching the movies of Polly Platt. And to balance that out, because that uh, filmography is full of really great films that are very serious usually, or at least the sort of film that you, you want to watch and consume and digest and think about. On the other end of the scale is the How Did This Get Made films, which are usually popcorn 
garbage that you can just like watch and talk through while you're watching it and have fun if it's in the right vein. And what we've been doing is checking out what movies are coming up. We're, we're listening to the, how did this get made podcast going back years. So as we're moving through it, when we come across a movie that we think we would actually enjoy watching, we put that aside and then every week we've been watching one of those movies and then we listen to the podcast and it's been a lot of fun. And so this week uh, we watched the movie monkey shines and then listened to the episode on the, the podcast and monkey shines is one of those movies from how did this get made that I think actually is fun to watch. You again, have to watch it with the right mindset, but it is a movie that was based on a novel and for a long time, I thought this was a Stephen King book, but it was not. And the director is George Romero. And it stars Jason Beggy, who people may recall as he was an actor who has been in documentaries recently about Scientology. He is one of those former Scientologists who's now coming out and saying, like, here's what they're doing. Here's what it's all about. Here's how they control you. Um, he was in a number of movies in the eighties and among other people in this film, uh, uh, Steven root plays a malicious scientist. It was apparently his first role on screen. Stanley Tucci plays a malicious neurologist. I don't know if it was his first role on screen, but he is much younger and has hair. Um, and it stars a monkey named boo who mm. plays the monkey of the monkey shines it is a confusing film yes let me just summarize it in this way a healthy vibrant man is hit by a car his spinal cord is damaged and then he is giving it given a helper monkey that he does not realize is being genetically modified and he and the helper monkey form a telepathic connection that leads to his suppressed urges manifesting through the monkey, which includes murder. It is wackadoo. It's, it's bananas. Yes, it is. It, you said bananas about a monkey film. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it is a lot of fun. And it, with it being paired up with getting ready to listen to the, how did this get made? It was, it was the perfect film for that because we watched the movie. It was it was bizarre, and part of it was actually engaging. A good portion of it, if you took out some of the crazier elements, there was a story being told about a man coming to terms with being uh, quadriplegic, and there was some really good acting going on. And then on top of that is this whole: here comes a monkey, and the monkey's a killer. And then on top of that comes the fact that the acting is by a monkey and this cute little monkey has to give these faces while actors are acting around him and the little expressions of a little monkey who's supposed to be a psychopath. It was adorable. Yes. So, uh, I give that money, that, that, that money, I give that movie a thumbs up if you go to it with the right attitude. The second film I want to talk about is one of the Polly Platt films. And again, this is part of our Polly Platt filmography watch. And it is the movie Pretty Baby, which was the film that first put Brooke Shields onto people's radars. 
she was 12 years old when she made this movie. And this is a movie that was produced and written by Polly Platt. And it is a very difficult movie to watch. I am glad I watched it. I don't know if I liked it. (laughs) And the reason for that is it is, there's two things going on. One is it is a story about a transition in our society from an era where child predatory sexual behavior around children was done in the open and there weren't a lot of things in society done to protect women and children and it is about a girl who's being raised in a brothel and she's now coming of age where she's moving out of being a child in the eyes of the people around her and there are now people who are looking at her as oh she can be part of the product of this whorehouse, which includes auctioning her off, auctioning off her virginity. The story is the relationship between her and a young photographer who is taking pictures of the prostitutes in the brothel. And that role is played by Keith Carradine. And he plays, it would be a very difficult role um, to be actively, to portray falling in love with a 12 year old girl. Yeah. And so it's a difficult movie on many levels around all of that. The other thing that's going on is it's about the transition in our country's history when society started to look at this and push back against it. Mm -hmm. The other thing is this movie itself is an example of a movie that was made at a time when a movie like this could be made. I don't think this movie would be made today. And I had a difficult time after watching the movie. I was talking to my girlfriend and I said, I can't think of a movie in recent years that wrestled with topics and depicted them in a way that was like this. There is full frontal nudity of a 12-year-old Brooke Shields. There is, There are a number of scenes that I can't imagine a director or a producer or a screenwriter trying oh, to put yeah. on screen. And... The only film that came to mind for me quickly was the movie Kids from back in the 90s where there was this very raw depiction of teenage, you know, almost pre-teenage youth out of control. And this had some of those elements, but it, it felt like the most European American movie I've ever seen. So... It's, I put that out there as a, it's a clearly great piece of filmmaking, but it's a very hard film to watch. I've never seen it. And neither had I. It sounds like I might not want to watch it. (laughs) It sounds like very difficult. It watches like a play through most of it. The dialogue seems very of a time. It's sound, it's, I think it's been constructed to sound artificial. And it is very play-like. And then the depiction of the scenes between Brooke Shields' character and Keith Carradine's character. He is intent, he is not a hero in the movie, but he is humanized in a way that makes it difficult at times. Um, and it was also interesting in the Polly Platt uh, podcast, there was discussion about this movie. And one of the things that was mentioned was this role at one point, Polly Platt wanted Jack Nicholson 
and there was pushback from the studio about putting Jack Nicholson in this movie. And at one point, my girlfriend said, thank goodness they didn't have Jack Nicholson in this. And then by the end of it, I thought, I actually wish they had. Uh Because what Keith Carradine brought to it was uh, too much of a softness. And I feel like Jack Nicholson would have brought more of an underlying predator that was obvious from the beginning. There's a little bit of a lecherousness to him that would yeah, have been there would have been there yeah. would have been a through line running through it. And uh but that's not to say Karen Deaton didn't do a good job. It's it's a good bit of acting all around. Another another actor in this is Susan Sarandon, who this was one of her earlier films. Um beautiful woman. I hadn't seen many films of her when this early in her career. So it was interesting to see her that young and a powerful performance as the mother of this girl in a position where she is desperate to get out of this life while putting her daughter into this life Hmm. and a very, um, a lot of motivations going on, a lot of different characters that pull them in different directions. And for Brooke Shields, as my girlfriend said, after we watched this movie, it's astounding. She came out as normal as she did. Yeah. Hats off to Brooke Shields. Um, the final film I wanted to talk about is a new movie and it is available on HBO right now. It just premiered recently, um, middle of January. It's the movie Lockdown, which stars Anne Hathaway and Chiwetel Ejiofor. And it is the story of two people at the beginning of the COVID pandemic who once London goes into lockdown, they were on the literally moments away from separating as a couple and then lockdown went into place and they have been forced to live together now for months Mm. and it takes place it feels like it takes place sometime in may or june when things were starting to hit their peak when things were really starting to get hard and they keep referring back to christmas their relationship at christmas and the difficulties that came to uh that rose to the surface around christmas And the two of them are watching their lives slowly dissolve around them as their work. He's been furloughed. She's a major executive at an international corporation. And the two of them are watching their worlds dissolve around them. And both of them are put in a position of something coming up work-wise that intersects their lives again while they have changed their entire goal in their lives and it's making them question the nature of their previous relationship their current relationship and their roles in society and in their work Mm -hmm. and it is that all makes it sound like a deep character drama it is a comedy it is funny and it is also there was just a record scratch right there this sounds like a really deep dramatic movie it's a comedy (laughs) it's a comedy it's a dark comedy (laughs) she's been in comedies like this before she was in the movie with uh uh, jason sudeikis where it was i can't remember the name of was it monstrous where she played the woman who had a strange connection to a giant creature that was attacking Japan when she would get drunk. Yeah. And it's, she's playing that thread and she's doing it beautifully. Mm -hmm. And he does comedy better than I expected him to do. 
He's very good. Uh, his half brother in the movie is played by Dulé Hill, who was on West Wing. He was on Psych. Uh, he does comedy with a, with great panache. The movie's interactions between different characters, other than them, is through Zoom calls, <laughs> which includes a huge number of cameos. Right. So you have Ben Stiller showing up. You have uh, Stephen. I can't remember his name. Let me check it. Ben Kingsley shows up as his boss. Uh, Ben Stiller shows up as hers. You have the slow revelation in both of them that what they are being set up to do work-wise gives them an opportunity to pull off a heist. So it is a heist movie. It is a comedy. It is a dark comedy from a relationship and pandemic perspective. Right. And when we started watching it, our first response was, if this hits too many buttons regarding the pandemic, the lockdown, the way we've been living our lives recently, we'll just turn it off. We, won't, we don't have to watch it. And then about 20 minutes into it, I had to pause it so I could go get something to drink. And when I paused it, I said, I'm really enjoying this. This is great. This is hitting the perfect note for the pandemic because they are taking the pandemic seriously. Mm -hmm. They are recognizing the impact it is having on the world. They are talking openly about hospitals being overwhelmed. They are talking about people being impacted with, with death and the loss of loved ones. Also dealing with what we've all been going through, the reality of we're prisoners in our own home and looking at each other and saying to one another, I love you, but how can I be with you in the same room any mm -hmm. longer? I, mm -hmm. I, I need space. And they're both looking for ways to shatter that sense of loss of control. And I give it very high marks for what it's able to accomplish with a movie that was made during a period of time where they couldn't make a movie. They made a movie about that time. So yeah. Hats off. Good performances all around, good spirit, and hitting the right notes around a very difficult time. It's going to be interesting fast-forwarding a decade from now and looking back on this time period to see yep. how, you know, art reflects life and to see what it was, what we were saying about ourselves in this time that we're going through. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see looking back. It's going to be very interesting to see. The challenge there is going to be the world outside of our homes became static. Yeah. And the movie reflects that at points where his job in the movie is he is a delivery driver. And one of the tensions in their relationship is he thinks she looks down on him because she's moved up in her career. She started working at Harrods and then she's moved on and she's moved up and she's become a top level executive in an international company that deals with high end sales of extreme luxury items. Right. And so she's a she's a she's hitting levels of wealth and power that he as somebody who is just a delivery driver thinks she looks down at me. Right. And he has scenes where he is out on the road in his delivery van and he's driving through London and there's no cars on the road. So he starts playing a game which is green lights mean red and red lights mean green. <laughs> so he starts stopping at the green lights and going on the red. <laughs> 
it's it's little things like that that as uh-huh. the the film is very subtly depicting it where he's out on the road and he's listening to classical music and he's driving this delivery van and he's he's also an artist and a poet he's he's he goes out on the street and yells to the street so he's reading poetry from his phone and he's reading classic poetry he's not reading his own work he's reading classic works that talk about the kind of isolation of a pandemic life and it's because they're by poets who are writing about the modernist vision of we're locking ourselves away in little cages right. of our own creation uh-huh. but they ref- but they touch the moment so beautifully and it's this sort of the the microchasm of the hard way that people are being forced to live and then the macrochasm of on some level people throughout time have had moments of looking around and saying who am i connected to and why yeah. So it's it's doing a lot of different things at one time. I agree with you. It's going to be interesting 10 years from now, a story being told. I personally didn't think I would be ready for this kind of movie this close while we're still living it. Right. I didn't think I would enjoy something like this. But something about this movie, I, I really like both the actors. I think they're both both very, very good. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was something about the, the setup. I knew it was a heist movie. So I was like, I, this might be the right way in to right. thinking about stuff like this. And I think it really worked. Cool. The, the two things I wanted to bring up are, are not new, <laughs> but uh, the first one is a video game. Uh, it's the video game Control, which came out at the end of 2019. I never played it. Um, it just, the PlayStation 5 version just came out and it was put out underneath the PlayStation Essentials, which was basically free games for PlayStation 5 owners. So I grabbed it. And this game has been used, I watch a lot of PC maker youtube channels and one of the games they tend to put pcs through their paces is control because there's so much like the new versions have like real-time you know ray tracing and there's so many objects on the screen moving around it really taxes a computer um and i, so I was just curious about this because i didn't know anything about it and within 10 minutes of the playing this game i am in love with this game this game is like right in my wheelhouse for what the story is and i don't know if, if you have you played it have you checked it out I have I have downloaded it on my Xbox because it was made available it's, through Game Pass. It's good. So I have it on my Xbox. Um it's, but I have not played it. It's it's um I, the two things that kept coming to mind as I'm playing it are it's like X-Files and Lost. Um it's paranormal. You don't know what is going on and the way that the story is being told from the perspective of the heroine where she's keeps talking about like why have you why have you brought me here what 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 is what are you doing and she's talking to this thing and you don't know if it's she's talking to you the player (laughs) or if she's talking to something else and it's just this mystery unfolding and it's like lost because of this mystery box that it's unfolding and you're kind of learning as you're going about this federal bureau of control that you're Mm. you're going in and trying to unravel what's going on it is it's it's one of my favorite games of all time is Half-Life 2. And so there's an element of Half-Life 2 to this as well. And it blends real video footage with video game footage, the best I've ever seen, where the actors that are the characters you're seeing, they've clearly modeled all of the characters after the real actors because there are sequences where she'll, she'll uncover an old VHS tape of something and it's showing the person it's like real actors on screen but it's done in a way where it it doesn't feel like jarring of like you're not flipping back and forth between 
the game doesn't look real enough and the video looks too real. It, 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 they've done a wonderful job kind of blurring that line and it feels seamless. And these little videos of this Federal Bureau of Control doing these crazy experiments and like, it's just like Lost where they find those old films of like the footage from 30 years ago about the island. Yeah. It's like there's, it's elements of that. And it's, it is so cool and creepy and it's, I worked, I worked in video games for a while and I was a creative director and having to do art direction. And I got to say the art direction in this game is spectacular. It's one of the best visually designed games I've seen in a long, long time. It is gorgeous. And the game takes place in a building that's just called the oldest house. And every time they show it from the outside, it's this brutalist architecture building that just looks like it goes up forever. And it's, it's really cool. And I was reading up on it and it was, they designed it after the AT&T building. I can't remember where it is, what city it's in, but they designed it after the AT&T building. And another one of the buildings they modeled it after was the Boston city hall, which mm. is one of the ugliest buildings in the world. I don't know if anybody's seen it. Sean, you lived here for a while. So you, you I know, this. Remember it, yes. it, it yeah. is an ugly building. Yeah. The FBI building here in Boston is also really ugly. <laughs> My favorite building in Boston is actually the, um, uh, it's a center for mental health and it is almost like they designed a building that makes you feel crazy when you look at it. And it is from the exterior, the base is smaller than the upper floors. So it, and it looks like there, no two floors are quite aligned with each other or square. And so it looks like a Jenga puzzle put together by a madman. And I was always like, <laughs> I was, were they thumbing their nose at people with mental illness? What is the point of designing a building to look like, like you can't trust your reality? <laughs> it, it always strikes me as like somebody would say, so where is, where is that office located? Oh, it's on the seventh and a half floor. Yeah. <laughs> like, what, what, this building doesn't look like it yeah. should exist. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, the, the, the game, the, the audio, the, the, the music and the sound effect design, the audio design, the visuals, the story, it's just it within first 10 minutes, it like it's got its hooks into me. It is I've only played a few hours worth of the game so far, but it is really cool. And if you've never checked it out and you have one of the new consoles, I strongly recommend checking it out. It's 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 a beautiful game. My understanding is that the company that made it they are also the company that made Quantum Break. Yes. which is yep. also a similar combination of gameplay with live footage, which is perfectly blended so that it's seamless going between a recorded moment and a gameplay moment. Um, and that they designed the game under the auspices, and I can't remember which, which major company is, but of another company, like an EA or an Activision or somebody like that. And that they designed the game and saw a future for franchising it basically Mm -hmm. spinning out of the game into a television program or a movie and stuff like that but the game didn't do well yep and the overarching parent company who who produced it owned the rights to all of the major elements it was microsoft was it microsoft Microsoft. yeah they they own the they own the characters and stuff like that and that the game company's response to they've lost that control mm-hmm. literally of those things and that control grew out of their desire to create a new franchise that they would retain the 
rights to mm-hmm. so that this game came out with them holding all those rights so that if there's a future for this in that vision of a movie or a tv series they will have it and that they've they've done things that have planted the idea that there are crossovers between this and quantum break which um i'm very excited by those ideas i haven't played the games but i'm very excited by the ideas behind them and control is one of those games that i've had i've had on my radar for a long time i just haven't gotten around to watching it or playing it yeah the, the quantum game I, I i played that for a while and then just petered out the the game didn't really resonate with me the gameplay was like okay so it's like i never really finished it this one the gameplay is excellent the storytelling is much stronger in my opinion it's like this one it's got me i, I know i'm going to finish this game um so definitely check it out the second thing i want to bring up and this is gonna be an odd one because this is like going back in the Wayback machine um babylon 5 <laughs> i started watching babylon 5 and the reason why i started watching is it just they remastered it Okay. Um, so it's all in HD right now. The special effects still look like garbage, but they're good. They're all there in their glory. Um, that's part of the charm. Yes, it is. It's like, it's like the American version of Dr. Who from the seventies. It's like, okay, this is really low budget. Uh, this show is a show when it was first aired, I thought, oh, cool. Another Star Trek like show. I'll check it out. I remember watching maybe the first half of season one and being like, this is hot garbage. I'm not watching this <laughs> and walked away. And then later I keep hearing, I think you've talked about this to me occasionally of like the show actually gets pretty good. Like the storytelling is really, really strong. Um, And recently it was, I think it was just this past week, uh, Mira Furlan or Furlan, she Mm -hmm. passed away um, recently and she played, uh, blanking on the name of her character, Delenn from Mm -hmm. the show. She was also in the show Lost. She played one of the scientists that was on the island. she's kind of a beloved actress and she just passed away. And so it's like the timing of HBO max releasing the H you can watch it for free. If you have HBO max, this HD remastered version, uh, her death kind of both those two things together made me thought, think, you know what, maybe you should try watching this because people always said that it gets good. Uh, Straczynski who wrote the show, he wrote every episode, like evidently he wrote the entire show before they even filmed it. So they knew yeah. exactly where it was going to end at season five. And so that to me is interesting to see, here's a show that was super like pre-constructed. It wasn't done as they were going, which most shows do. Um, yeah. To see, that's part of the reason why some people say the storytelling holds together well. But <laughs> my, my early review, I'm only four episodes in, it was just flooding back those memories of this show is really hard to like. It, it's making yeah. me work hard to like it because yeah. the acting, no offense, is horrific. It is yeah. bad acting. It's not even good soap opera acting. It is like her, so bad. Car, like the main guy, it, it's, it's like he's got a rot up his butt and it's like he doesn't have any. He's always talking like hero man. It's yeah. just like, what is this show? doing and there's a couple of actors on the show that are good actors and there's glimmers of good acting but then it comes across as they can't do good acting because the writing the actual things coming out of their mouths straczynski may have a good plot that happens over five seasons but the guy doesn't know how to write human dialogue like how people actually speak so it's like the people sound very artificial and it sounds like it was written by a 10-year-old who came up with a cool sci-fi concept. And there's elements of like, 
why, wait, why is the captain of this thing? Why does he have to jump in the spaceship to go save this person? You probably have hundreds of pilots on this goddamn ship. He doesn't have to be the hero man to go do everything. It's like there's elements of just this childishness to the way the story is being told that is like, I keep thinking this can't get better. If this is where it's starting from, how, how do, how do so many people love this show? I'm going to stick with it for a bit longer because, mm-hmm. but it's one of those, there's a reason why I stopped watching it when it was brand new, because it's just my wife overhearing it in the kitchen as I'm watching this, she kept coming into the door and just with a smile on her face, like that sounds so stupid. And I'm just <laughs> looking at her going, cause it is, it's like really bad. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Should I keep going or should I just like tap out? I, I, did not know the Babylon five was available on HBO max. Uh huh. I kid you not. I have been thinking for about three weeks. I wish there was a way for me to watch Babylon five. Well, you can, it's there. <laughs> and I was also thinking, I wonder if anybody will ever remaster it. So to find out that they've remastered it in this way, uh, is, is really great. It is a show. I remember at the time that it was being aired, having the exact same thoughts you did. And I had the same response you did. I watched the first season and then before the first season was over, I was just like, this is a hot mess. I walked away from it. It was being aired around the same time that deep space nine was being aired. And I couldn't help but say like, Oh my God, deep space nine, which is my arguably my favorite of the star treks was like hitting all these things. And with the polish that star Trek had at that point, because you know, they had the, the run of next generation. They'd, ironed out a lot of the kinks and a lot of the Roddenberry-esque, like, oh, this doesn't quite work in a modern television series. And Deep Space Nine was hitting on all these uh, high notes. And then here was Babylon 5 looking like a high school drama club had been like, let's tell a story set on a space station. Yeah. And the special effects, as you mentioned, they were very excited about the fact that computer graphics had hit a point where in their words at the time, they could literally do anything they wanted Mm -hmm. with the special effects. They could do special effects that didn't require models and didn't require high-end studios. They could do everything in a computer. And they did. And they did it at a level that was the 1990s. So compared to what we can do today, it is going to, the special effects are going to look very retro. I think you're going into it with, it's like Doctor Who. You've got to look at it as classic Doctor Who. You've got to keep in mind, yes, it's not going to be a problem if you go in and see that wall is clearly made out of cardboard. Yes. He's holding a hairdryer and pretending it's a laser gun. You, like going with that attitude. Yes. Yeah. Focus on the big picture storyline as opposed to the words that come out of their mouths. That's because what I'm a lot of the yeah. a lot of the dialogue is going to be uh, and now it is time for me to monologue about ethics and morality. And it is a for Straczynski, my response to Straczynski's writing every episode, I find that both incredibly inspiring mm-hmm. and it is also one of the underlying problems yes. of the series yep. is that it did not get retooling from a multitude of voices to be able to say, well, how do we get this same moment across without it feeling quite so 
you know, well, you want to know the answer to that problem? I open up the door and here's a character who's going to walk in and give us all the answers to that problem. Yes. But if you take on the mindset of this is going to be B-grade sci-fi storytelling, adventure storytelling with a vision from a person who is saying, much like Roddenberry, if we can learn to see the human in everybody, including the non-human around us, we can start moving together toward a future where we can do away with conflict and we can do away with war and figure out how to find the similarities even in our differences so that we can build those bridges. And there is a lot, especially now in the era we're living through Mm -hmm. that that resonates. And I think that the, some of the issues around the acting that you're talking about disappear through the second and into the third season, largely because like every series, the first season, the actors come in thinking, oh, I know where I'm supposed to, supposed to try to get with my character. Mm-hmm. And by the second season, actors, by and large, are pulling back from that goal and drifting back into themselves. And so what you end up seeing is less of a cardboard performance from some of these actors as they really are able to rein it back into who am I as a person portraying this character? Right. Delenn is one of those. Um, there's the introduction of a new character played by Bruce Boxleitner, who he was a much more accomplished actor than mm-hmm. anybody on the series at that point. He'd been on Scarecrow and Mrs. King. So he was he was a guy who stepped into that show and stepped in as a kind of Jean-Luc Picard type character. Mm-hmm. And he and he brings a, a level of acting that is better than than what you're seeing right now. There are a number of, of character actors on the show, Stephen first, Andreas Katsoulas, Peter Jurassic. Um, they all bring themselves into the roles more and more, especially Katsoulas and Peter Jurassic who play the two most Shakespearean characters yeah. yep. in the show yeah. and their relationship and the way that they go off against each other, I think is, develops a beautiful story arc that for me was my favorite Mm -hmm. of the entire show. Like by the time the fifth year comes along and the series is ending, their relationship was the one that I was just like, this is the pair Mm -hmm. for me was like week by week. I hope to see more of their storyline. Um, and it's sort of similar to some of the stuff that they did in next generation around, uh, the Klingons and Worf's character and, the way that that story arc for Star Trek was where you got a lot of very meaty Shakespearean type stories. And that's going on with, with some of this, that he's telling stories that are personal on one level and galactic on another. And sometimes the personal storylines are the weaker ones. Well, (laughs) the bigger political issues, the bigger, uh, questions of the allegiances of the weaker against the stronger, those storylines start to gel in the second season. And especially when you get to seeing some of the threads that feel 
you will recognize by seasons two and three things that were planted in the first season mm-hmm. that seemed like just casual. Oh, they referred to that thing. And then by season three, it's the, oh my God, it's that. Right. So if you hang on and it's the sort of thing, it's the perfect thing to watch when you're eating lunch. Yeah, it's For me, it's background viewing right now. But yeah. to go back to the, the childishness of it, I didn't know this, but Straczynski wrote a lot of episodes of He-Man, yeah. She-Ra, and Captain Power. And like when I yeah. saw, when I found that out, I was like, oh, that explains a hell of a lot yeah. <laughs> about the show. Since Babylon 5, he has become one of the major writers in comic books. He's like one of the powerhouse guys. He wrote Spider-Man for a number of years. He was given control of an entirely new Spider-Man book where he wrote it all from the perspective of the very beginning. He basically hmm. went back in time and wrote the origin story of Spider-Man again. It was writing a modern telling of that story. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's beloved in, in comic book circles for some of, the, some of the things that he's been involved with writing. So he is a guy who, yeah, he, he's written on tons of different cartoon shows, but he's also written for a lot of adult programming. And he mm-hmm. is a, he's a guy who in writing circles is like, whether you... It's it's sort of like Stephen King. You may not like his writing, but the man is a writer. He's right. he puts himself in front of a keyboard and he pumps out words and he gets it done. And I have a lot of respect for him for that. I mm-hmm. also have a lot of respect for the show Deep, uh, the Babylon Five, as a story. I think he does a. I think overall it is a good piece of work. I think that there were problems at the nuts and bolts level, but I think that. Yeah. By the end of it, it was a program that I was very glad I watched. And I will also give a shout out to, he's our brother from another mother, uh, Jesse Farrell, who yeah. we are not related to. No. And he was a coworker of mine before he became a coworker of Matthew's. Yep. Because uh, Matthew went to graduate school in Boston like I did, but he went to graduate school in Boston as I was leaving. So he basically replaced me at my part-time job and (laughs) there can only be one. (laughs) Yeah. There can only be one of us, but there was always the Jesse Farrell who was our coworker. And Jesse was the one when we were having a conversation around sci-fi TV shows. And I was bemoaning the fact that there weren't more good quality sci-fi TV shows on the air at that point. And he said, well, have you checked out Babylon five? And I said, I can't get past what, I saw and I heard that they replace a character at the beginning of the second season. I think it just sounds like absolute weird stunt casting at this point. And he said, no, 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 you, you have to give it a chance because that was always part of the plan. It was not done willy nilly. It was designed to have that cast change. And he said, you have to look past some of the bad acting and weird storylines and just get into the bigger story arc. It all starts to make sense. And it was him that took me back into it. And when I watched it with that perspective, and it, like you, it was background viewing. I started recording the show and watching it while I was at work. It was a video store, so it was no problem. So I would pop it in and I would watch it when I was at work. And that's where I was like, oh, I see it now. I can, I can. Right. You get, if you ride the horse the right way, it carries you with it. If you try to make it a different 
a different show, it's <laughs> it's gonna hit all the wrong notes for you. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna try to ride that horse the right way. <laughs> try and ride it the right way. So everybody who's listening should tell us what they think about that. Has anybody else out there been a Babylon Five viewer? And like me, do you think it's worth Matthew's time? Or are you somebody who has tried it recently and discovered, ooh. (laughs) You can find our contact information in the podcast description, and please do subscribe. And again, don't forget that you can visit stilltbdfm, stilltbd.fm. The dot is going to be a critical part of that address, so I'm going to throw it out there. stilltbd.fm, and you'll see the support the podcast link there, and you can put a dollar in the tip jar if you like. It will really help the podcast and it will help with the growth of what we hope to do with the show. Please be sure to give us a rating, review, and share us with your friends. It really does help the podcast. The podcast helps the channel. The channel helps Matthew. And then Matthew makes me do this all on video. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time.